Babes, welcome to Coffee and Tequila, the show for people who love stories and love storytelling. You can get a morning show on Mondays and a late show on Fridays. My name is Zach, and as always, this episode is kindly being sponsored by Helix Sleep, and I'll let you know a little bit more about them a little bit later, but first, let's get down to business, right? I'm sure everybody by now has noticed that I am solo. I'm flying solo for this episode um, because the love of my life, my partner in crime, my partner in life, has stepped out on me for the next couple weeks. So I am doing this solo and I'm going to hold down the fort and listen. Okay. I don't want to listen to me either talk for an hour. I don't want to listen to me for an hour, but we're going to help each other. Okay. This is going to be a group effort. I'm going to help you. You're going to help me. And we are going to. We're just going to get through it. I'm going to tell you a story for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, hopefully not. And 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 whether you're watching or you're listening to us, watching us on YouTube, listening to us on podcast, uh, make sure to like leave a five-star review or a like and a comment. And as soon as the hour's done, you can just like click off and you never have to see me again, right? And we've done it. We've done the damn thing. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, we're going to be covering the Amityville Horror today, right? The uh, the Amityville Murders today. It was actually supposed to be like one big long episode, and I had to split it up because there's just so much information, right? Um, so today we're going to be doing the Amityville Murders, and on Friday we're going to do the Amityville Horror Story, the Haunted House Story. Now, if you don't know anything about Amityville, like have you been living under a rock? This is the most famous haunted house story ever. This is, in, at least in this country, in the United States, I don't know about the rest of the world, you can let me know about that, but I remember watching the Amityville Horror when I was like really young. I don't remember the very first time I watched it, but I know that from a really young age, I was like obsessed with this house. I, I just, this house, if you've never seen the house, it looks like it was made to have a haunted house story written about it. It has these big haunting quarter round windows that look like eyes that are just like staring into your soul, right? Um... And to cap it off, there was a family of, of six murdered in this house by their own son, nonetheless. Um, and then a year later, the Lutz family moves in. They stay only like 28 days, and then they like flee the house, leave all of their stuff, and create this wonderful ghost story that we're going to be covering this week. When I was a kid, I got the Amityville Horror like box set. It was like three, the first three movies, and then like a bonus disc with like a couple documentaries on it. Um, now the movie like didn't really scare me. I wasn't really scared by the movie. I thought it was kind of hokey, and it was like it was a '70s movie, right? And I'm like this young kid, and I'm like, oh, that's too old. That movie too old. But I, uh, the movie didn't scare me too much. But on the bonus disc, they had two documentaries that were like made by the History Channel. So like you have to picture uh, late '90s, early 2000s, like History Channel quality documentaries, right? <laughs> Kind of quirky, but they were really good documentaries, actually. And one of them covered the Amityville murders. And one of them covered the uh, the the Lutz family moving into the house and whether it was a hoax or real life, um, which is basically what we're doing this week. But these documentaries, like, scared the shit out of me, right? Some of the visuals, like, terrified me as a kid. They show this one picture of one of the DeFeo boys, like, off in the, in the distance. And, like, he's got these glowing eyes. And it's just fucking terrifying. Ugh. And it scared me. And I would, like, stay up night after night terrified of, like, what was in my corner of, or, like, looking around a corner or, like, open doorways. It was hor horrifying. Horrifying. Um, but so that original, like, Amityville Haunted House story gave birth to this, this franchise of movies, never ending movies, never ending books, never ending documentaries. Like, uh, it, it just it has a life of its own at this point. Um, canonically, there's only like a few movies that really like make sense, but then there are endless sequels. 
that just have the Amityville name attached. Like people would make these B movies. I hesitate to even call them B movies. I'd call them Z movies. Um, and I think the filmmakers, they make it like with like a, I don't know, a hundred dollar budget is what it looks like. And, uh, the filmmakers will just like slap Amityville on the top of it <laughs> just to get people's interest, I guess. Um, but they're like really weird things like Amityville shark attack or Amityville clock. I remember there was one called the Amityville Dollhouse, which is actually pretty cool. I'm, I'm surprised there's not like Amityville Strip Club or, you know what, uh, one I think I'd really like to watch, which is uh, Amityville Drag Race. That'd be fun. Like a bunch of drag queens trying to escape the Amityville Horror House. Sign me up. Put it on Tubi. Um, yeah, so I'm covering two books today is where I got my information from. The first book is called High Hopes by... Prosecutor Gerard Sullivan and journalist Harvey Aronson. Gerard Sullivan was the prosecutor on the case of the DeFeo murders. And then that was that was in 1981, so it's a little bit closer to the actual events. And then we have The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Osuna, which is actually kind of low-key, like calling out High Hopes um, quite a bit. They So in High Hopes, it's very like because it was the prosecutor and like district attorney, he was very much like pro pro cop pro detective everybody did a great job you know they got this case done they solved it they got ronald you know put in jail and then the night that the DeVeos died um they really uh, rick kind of calls out like the corruption that was going on at the time and the uh how the investigation was kind of flawed and and the trial was flawed and it wasn't that fair um so two very very differing accounts so we're going to cover that when we come back but first a word from our sponsor now it's time to tell y'all a little bit about our sponsor for today's episode, Helix Sleep. Helix is a premium mattress and a box company that makes beds to fit your unique sleep style. Now my baby boy is gone for a couple weeks. I'm sleeping in the Helix mattress alone. I do try to spread out, but it feels like something's missing, right? So when he comes back, I know that I'm going to <laughs> completely clean the sheets, get the sheets all ready and nice and fluffy, fluff some pillows, and have the bed all nice and ready for his return. And when he gets home... And we get in that bed. He's probably going to pass out because it's a Helix mattress and he is probably extremely tired right now. Helix knows that everybody is different and everybody has their own unique needs. And so they've made a sleep quiz that'll match you with your perfect mattress based on your needs. I am an all-over sleeper. Alistair is more of a side sleeper. He likes a firm mattress. I like, uh, you know, more medium. We took the quiz together and we got the Midnight Mattress. And one of the best parts about Helix is that they deliver the mattress right to your door for free. It comes rolled up in a box and is super easy to set up yourself. And if it makes you nervous to buy something online that you haven't tried, Helix has a 100 night sleep trial so you get more than 3 months to make sure that you absolutely love it. And if you don't, they'll pick it up for you and you'll get a full refund. Now, if you or somebody you know is in the market for a new mattress and you think that Helix sounds right for you, you can go to helixsleep.com slash tequila and you can get up to $200 off of your mattress and two free pillows. That's my baby boy's part. Ah. Okay, so again, I read two books, so there's so much information between those two books. I'm really trying to pull the information that was common in each book to kind of paint this whole bigger story. Um, I think the... From at least within the canon, 
Hmm. At, least, <laughs> at least within the movies that are canon. Uh, the DeFeo story is like a common thread that is always either mentioned or there's a flashback or something, but it always goes like this. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was watching TV one night really late at night. He's watching a war movie, and he could hear like his family like whispering about him, right? And a pair of black hands come, and... It's hand, It's holding this rifle, and it hands him this rifle, and he hears these voices in his head telling him to kill his family, and so he takes this rifle and goes room to room in this house and shoots everybody dead, and nobody wakes up. A lot of times, like, the flashbacks are in the rain. It's like rainstorming outside. Nobody hears, you know, the gun going off, like, all of these times, and nobody wakes up. Nobody, you know, fights back. Everybody's just, like, all of the family members are asleep face down in their beds, shot execution style. Um, and that's the mythology. That's the myth right there. There's a, it, it goes a lot deeper than that. You know, if, you, if you're just concerned about, <laughs> about that, then there you go. There's your ghost story. If you want to, like, deep dive with me a little bit, here we go. Um, I think maybe I made a list of the family members because the DeFeo family was a family of seven, so I think it's important to go through them just because we got a big cast of characters here, and it's, it'll try to remember, okay, so that I'm not having to explain everybody all the time. So we have uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr., either Ronnie Sr. or Big Ronnie is what I'm going to call him. He's 43 at the time that he dies. Uh, Louise DeFeo is 43, and that's his wife. Their oldest son, Ronnie or Butch, I might call him either. Um, he's 23 at the time. Dawn is their oldest daughter. She's 18. Allison is next in line. She's 13. Mark is 12. And then younger brother, youngest brother, John, is 9. Okay, so that's the family. This is the DeFeo family. Early, early, early on November 13th, between like 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., Ronnie is getting is up and getting ready uh, for work. Like shaves, he goes downstairs to get his keys. He can't really find his keys, so he finds a set of keys that have the key to his uh, blue Electra on it, but it doesn't have like a house key or anything because it's not his keys. So he takes off in his car, and he goes, and he goes driving to work in Brooklyn. Um, this is like really interesting that he got up so early and was getting ready for work so early because this shift one doesn't start until 8 a.m. It's an 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. shift. And two, like he doesn't have any respect for this job. This He works at a Buick agency and the Buick agency is actually owned by his maternal grandfather, uh, Michael Burgandy. And his it's uh, the service. It's. His boss is the service manager, his father, uh, Ronald Sr., and so he pretty much shows up whenever he wants. He just, you know, works whenever he wants. He, he basically says that nobody can tell him what, the, what to do because his dad is the boss, right, uh, and his granddad is like the head honcho boss. Um, so he comes and goes whenever he wants, so like showing up to work early was not something that was in his wheelhouse. He just did not do that. Um it's a little sketchy there. Ronnie was also on probation because he had been caught with a stolen outboard motor. And so he was on probation and he needed pay stubs, which is really the only reason he had this job anyway, right? Because he didn't need money. He pretty much got handed money all the time. Um, his father would give him like $500 a week is what it was reported. But he, he was basically working because he needed the pay stubs to show his parole officer and to make sure he was doing good and getting drug tested and all of these things. And this is how I know this son of a bitch doesn't go into work early is because he gets there and it's closed. And like, if you were showing up this early often, wouldn't you know that it's already closed? No, it's not even open yet. So he goes and gets breakfast, comes back and it's finally open. And then he goes in and he kind of just like fucks around for a little bit. He doesn't even have a job title. Um, he's just employed there and just kind of does whatever needs to be done around the place in the servant the service department. Um, 
So he stays at work until about noon, maybe like one o'clock, and he calls the house a couple times, uh, and he can't reach anybody. Nobody's answering at the house, so he's like, uh, I'm not staying till five, and so he leaves work early, of course, um, and he kind of just like bounces around town. He goes and sees his, 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 his best friend, Bobby Kilsky. Uh, he goes and sees his girlfriend. He goes to his girlfriend, Mindy's house, and they go to the, to the mall and go shopping. Um, he goes to Henry's bar. For about an hour, an hour and a half, he like downs four or five vodka uh, seven ups, and it's a little hammered. Um, and then he goes to another friend's house uh, to score some some heroin, and he shoots up heroin there. And then he goes back to Henry's bar and meets with his uh, friend from earlier, Bobby Kilsky. Okay, now the entire time he's like bouncing around town, he's always like with somebody, right? And he's always making sure somebody sees him. And whenever he's with somebody, he's always calling calling home. He's like, "Can I use your phone?" He calls home. Uh, he might call twice, and then he hangs up, and he says, you know, my family hasn't been answering me all day. I've been calling them because I need them to put my pay stubs out so I can show my parole officer, but nobody's answering at the phone. I wonder if something's wrong at the phone, and everybody, everybody's reactions are pretty priceless. They're all like, like, nobody gives a shit. Everybody's pretty much like, oh, that's terrible. If you've ever heard of, like, Big Ange, it sounds exactly like that. Everybody's like, hmm, I'm sure they're fine. And so he gets to Henry's bar later that night where he's meeting Bobby Kelsky, and he tells him, hey, man, like, I think something is wrong at my house, and I, I, I maybe I should go over to my house, and maybe I'll probably have to break a window because I don't have the house key, and I can't get in. And so Bobby Kelsky pretty much tells him, hey, man, you do what you got to do. <laughs> like, he's not a fucking care in the world. He does not give a shit. Um so the the house is 112 Ocean Avenue and Henry's bar is is literally a half a mile down down the road from 112 Ocean Avenue. So Ronnie gets in his blue electra and drives over to his house and within minutes he comes screeching into the parking lot, comes busting through the door yelling, "You got to help me, you got to help me. Somebody shot my mother and father." Everybody looks to him. Bobby Kelsky gets up. He's like, "What? Are you sure?" And Butch Ronnie's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, please help me." And so Bobby Kelsky pretty much takes the lead. He's like, "Yeah, let's go." And so he's gonna as as he's going to the car, Butch like stops in the doorway of the bar and looks back at everybody else. And there's only a few people there, and it seems like they're all pretty friendly. And he says, "You guys have to come too. I want y'all to come too." So he just wants a group of people going. They show up at the house. Ronnie stays in the driveway, and a few of them go into the house and they go upstairs. And Bobby Kelsky sees uh, Louise and Ronald Sr. dead in the bed. And he comes, he like puts him off balance a little bit. He's feeling a little sick. He goes back downstairs and Ronnie's putting on this whole show in the in the driveway. He's crying and he's like beating his fists into the car. And he's just like, oh, my parents are dead. I can't believe my parents are dead. Who did this? Normal reaction, yes, yes, and my heart would go out to him if he didn't kill them. So <laughs> let's kind of go into it, right? Um, it's not they they call the police. Bobby Kilsky calls the police, or somebody calls the police, and, and it's not very long before the first officer comes. Um, by this point, Ronnie's in the kitchen. The first officer goes upstairs, checks the parents' room, sees that they're dead, confirms that they're dead, and then also sees across the hall there's another door that's open, and so he goes in there, and it's the boys' bedroom. They share a bedroom, Mark and Mark and John. And he sees that they're also dead in their beds as well. Um, he goes downstairs and he calls it in. He calls in a report and says, hey, we have four homicides here. And as he's doing it, Ronnie hears him and he says, I have two sisters as well. This is what I found really weird, Rod. 
is that Ronnie's acting like he doesn't even know his siblings are dead and that he's surprised by it all. But if he went into his, if he's one, already worried all day about his family and nobody's answering and he goes in and, and finds his parents dead, wouldn't he look for his siblings? Wouldn't he like have enough concern to look for his siblings? But no, he doesn't because he killed them. Um, so he says, yeah, I have two siblings too. He wants other people to find these bitches. And I think all day he was just waiting. He was wanting people. He was, it seems like he was trying to go somebody in to saying, Hey, let's go to your house and let's check it out. Right. He wants somebody else to discover it all. So, um, the officer says you have two sisters. So he goes back upstairs, opens one of the doors next, next to the, uh, that shares a wall with the boy's room. And he finds one of his sisters dead in her room. Then he goes upstairs to the third floor, and the third floor has Ronnie's uh, room on one side and his sister Dawn's room on the other. And he finds Dawn dead in her bed as well, and he comes down, and he calls back in the report, and he says, Hey, we don't have four homicides. We have six. People are, like, shitting themselves, right? This is six homicides. It's fucking crazy. This entire family just murdered, massacred. So it's not long before this whole crime scene is just a madhouse, right? There are people, there are neighbors, passersby, all gathered outside watching what's going on. It's like six something o'clock, maybe seven. Um, officers have all arrived. There's much police everywhere. They're like casing the place. They're, 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 they're taking pictures, marking everything off. They're taping everything off. Um, there's reporters there. The police chief, this was fucking wild. The police chief is selling raffle tickets to the crowd standing outside to try to like boost an event that they're going to be having upcoming. It's freaking weird, man. Um, and inside the detectives are asking Ronnie, like if he knows anybody that would have done this. And Ronnie immediately says, yeah, there's a guy named Louis Fellini. And Louis Fellini was actually a really good friend of the DeFeos for a long time. A couple years before Louis Defini, or <laughs> Defini, Louis Fellini even moved in with the DeFeos into 112 Ocean Avenue because his own house in Brooklyn had burnt down. So they were pretty good friends. Ronald Sr. and Louis Defini were pretty good friends. Um, but it's pretty well known that Louis, Louis Fellini is a, uh, he's got mob ties, right? He is a hitman for the mob. And so Ronnie pretty much says this, like, yeah, Fellini's a hitman. And I think he probably did it because... Um, a couple a couple years ago, I called him a cocksucker, and we got into a fight over this. Um, and the police are like, well, if you called him a cocksucker a couple years ago, why would he wait this long to get, get revenge? It doesn't really seem right. And then it's it's later revealed also that uh, Ronnie had... Ronnie had been taking $20,000 to the bank, and the $20,000 belonged to the Buick agency. And the Buick agency, I think they were using this for, for payroll. Um, and on the way, he called the police and said, hey, I've been robbed. I was carrying all this money, and I've been robbed. Please help. And please get there. And Ronnie's not very cooperative. And finally, the police are like, tell Ron Ronald Sr. that, hey, we, we think he – we suspect that he this is a bogus story this was a bogus robbery and he actually like did something with the money right um now this event like pisses ronald senior off to no end because it also uh severs his relationship with with louis fellini big ronnie tells fellini hey if you do anything to my son if anything happens to my son i'm gonna come and i'm gonna kill your whole family and so from this point, like, I feel like you're threatening a, I don't know what the mob rules were in the seventies in New York, but I feel like threatening a, a hitman. You don't do that. You don't do that. And so Ronnie is or big. Ronnie is pretty much watching him and his family's backs from this point. Um, so it's like plausible. 
that <laughs> that Fellini did this, but he didn't because spoiler alert, Ronnie did it. So he's really pushing this narrative that Fellini killed his family and that they need to go and find Fellini. Fellini, Fellini, Fellini. Detectives are like, well, if Ronnie's the only surviving member of this family and this was a hit, then we need to get him to safety. So they take him to like the police station into the homicide department and they take him there to start asking him a little bit more questions. And remember, Ronnie is like distraught. He's crying. He's like really upset, making a big show about how upset he is. And when they get in the cop car, and start driving away from the house. Ronnie's fine. He's like, he composes himself and he's like, hey, yeah, yeah. If you take a left up here, we're good. We can get there faster. By now, Ronnie's grandparents have heard about this too. And so uh, Michael Bergani, his, his grandfather and his other grandfather, Rocco DeFeo, both show up to the to, to the scene. And Michael Bergani is like demanding to see his daughter's body. He, he wants to see her body before they take her out of the house and take her to the morgue. And, uh, the police are asking these grandparents and all of the family a bunch of questions. And Rocco, Rocco DeFeo, this big Italian guy, I guess, in the 70s, comes in between him, the family, and the, and the police. And he says, no more questions. And he, and he pretty much puts himself in between and he, like, refuses to let anybody else talk to the police. The bodies are pretty stiff by now, so it indicates that they've been dead a while. Um... The bodies are put into body bags, black body bags, and put on gurneys, and they're let out of the house. And so there's this stoop that is right when you come out of the front door, and there's a couple steps that go down. And so they're bringing all these bodies out, and one of the bodies, the officers carrying the bodies, like, slip a little bit, and the body bag comes off of the gurney a little bit, and one of the younger DeFeo boys, his body comes out of the bag and it's not a lot it's just slightly but it's enough for all of the crowds to see and it's like burned in everybody's memories now back at the police station ronnie is like super cooperative when he's being questioned by detectives um even overly cooperative is what i would say so he's offering like he he keeps telling them and he tells them over and over again you know, I want to help you. I want to help you guys. I want to help you guys find out what happened. If, if you need anything from me, you tell me. You tell me. I will, I'll be as cooperative as I got to be. You know, you just tell me. You got very Italian, you know, New York. Um, but he's like overly sharing too much. Like he's telling them about things that he they don't even need to know about. It has nothing to do with the case. You know, he keeps telling I want to be honest with you guys. So like, you know, a little bit ago, my father told me to go and, and, and set the boat on fire. So I did it, and he collected the insurance. I just want to let you guys know that. I just want to let you guys know that. And also, also, let me let me tell you this one more thing before you start asking me questions about the actual case, right? Um, the, the, the the vacant house next door. Yeah, me and my buddy Bobby Kilski, we went in there, and we stole a bunch of antiques, and we sold them. Yeah, yeah, I just want to let you know that just so, so, so it doesn't come up, you know? It's like offering all this information that really has nothing to do with it, right? But then when the detectives start asking him about things that do pertain to the case, he, like, his memory gets a little bit fuzzy, right? They start asking him if he has any weapons, and he's like, yeah, 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 but, uh, my, my, my father, he, my father took all the weapons from me. I had, I have a, a few guns, and my father took them all from me. He was punishing me. Um, and they start asking him about calibers of weapons, of calibers of his guns, and such, you know, they, they, they want to have, like, a log of, like, what weapons were in the house, and he's like, oh, I don't, I, I don't remember stuff like that. I don't remember calibers of guns. I don't know. It, it just, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. So it's like, Selective memory is what we're experiencing here with Ronnie DeFeo Jr. There were a couple witnesses, not to the crime, but about 3 a.m., maybe 3.01 a.m., there was a teenager a couple houses down, like two houses down, who was awakened by the DeFeo's dog. And the DeFeo's dog is the sheepdog, and it was just going freaking berserk. It was outside, it was going insane, and it was just barking. And it wasn't just barking, it was screaming, and it was enough to wake up 
this teenager, and this teenager thought about calling the cops, but he decided not to because the dog stops barking. Um, about 45 minutes later, there's a barmaid who's leaving work, and she drives down Ocean Avenue and notes the DeFeo house because it's the only house at 3.45 a.m. with all of its lights on. All three floors, all the lights were on, right? And the only house on the street with all the lights on. So it's really bizarre and really strange. All six of the bodies were taken from the house to the morgue and autopsies were started on them pretty quickly. Uh, they, they were removing bullets from them. They're like seeing the trajectory of like how the bullets entered them, how many times they were shot. They're figuring out everything. So it's, it's, it's determined that, so this is where like discrepancies start happening. In high hopes, it says that all of the bullets came from a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. And in the night the DeFeos died, they said all of them but one, one of the two bullets that was pulled from Luis DeFeo actually was not from a 35 uh, caliber Marlin rifle. It was actually different, which would indicate two different guns, which would indicate different people having committed this, this, these murders, um, different accomplices. So both of the parents, Big Ronnie and Louise, were both shot twice. Uh, Don was shot once in the neck. Allison was shot in the face. Mark and John were both shot once in the back. So again, kind of the mythology of this murder has always been that uh, how could six people be shot? They were all face down. Nobody woke up and nobody, none of the neighbors heard any of the gunshots. None of the family members heard any of the gunshots and they were all just executed. This is not entirely true based on the autopsy results, right? Okay, so uh, Ronnie Sr. and Louise it, there's indications that they were probably both awake when when they were shot right the trajectory on on ronnie's two bullets he was shot twice in the back and one of them one of the trajectories is a little bit different than the first one and so it's like indicates that he probably had moved um, and i guess being shot you know you probably would move even if you were asleep um louise there, there was there was evidence indicating that she probably had lifted herself up and looked towards the doorway and that's when the second bullet had hit her or that she had been shot by both times at that point right um, the 13 year old daughter, Allison also was shot in the face and the evidence indicates like from the movements and all of that, that she had probably lifted her head and looked towards the muzzle of the gun as she was shot. So, um, it's, yeah, the evidence that they, they were not all asleep and they were probably, there was probably a couple of them, a few of them, if not all of them that heard something and probably woke up. All right, now going back to the 35 caliber Marlin rifle, there was no 35 Marlin rifle among the weapons found at the house, but there was an officer who was uh, diagramming the house. He was taking pictures of everything, logging everything, and like really getting a layout of the house. Um, and so he was going room to room like countless times over and over again. And at one point, he went up to Ronnie DeFeo's room and he saw two gun boxes leaning up against the wall, one for a 22 uh, caliber Mar Marlin rifle and one for a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. And he, at this point, did not even know that a 35 Marlin rifle had been used. So he was just kind of like, hmm, that looks a little suspicious. His gut was telling him to take the boxes. And so he took the boxes. And when he was done with his work at the house, he took the boxes to the detective station. And the detectives see this, these boxes and they're like, holy shit. These boxes were in, found in Ronnie's room, um, and he said he didn't have any of these guns, like these were not the guns, or that he didn't remember which guns he had, um, and there was a thirty-five Marlin rifle used to kill this family, so it's already looking suspicious. They go, detectives, or, at this point, 
I guess I'll back up a little bit. Um, by this point, Ronnie was already asleep. He was like exhausted. He'd been up a long time. I'm not even gonna lie. He's exhausted. He's on heroin. He's on, he's ready for bed. Right. So they pull out a cot for him in the file room, and he's in the, in the file room sleeping. So detectives are still doing their job. They're they're doing it pretty quickly. So they go to his buddy Bobby Kelsky and start asking Bobby Kelsky questions. And this is like 5 a.m. They start asking him a bunch of questions, and Bobby Kelsky actually like leads them to their theory that Ronnie probably did this. A couple of Bobby Kelsky's like answers, things that were revealed. One that Ronnie was a gun nut. He loved guns. He knew everything about guns. He knew guns like the back of his damn hand. So him not remembering calibers like didn't make any sense, right? He he knew everything about guns. He was a gun nut. Uh, two, that Ronnie had gotten all of his guns back from his father already. So his father did not still have possession of his guns. Ronnie had possession of his guns at the time of the murder. And three, that Ronnie, a couple weeks before the murders, had tried to buy a silencer and was adamant that you could fit a silencer onto a rifle. So immediately detectives are like, yeah, Ronnie's our guy. They go wake him up about 9 a.m. Remember, it's like between 7, 7 p.m. and 9 a.m. that they figure all of this out and they do all this work. I have to say, like, High Hope's really like... Uh, uh, congratulates them for this. And I have to say, if this is how it went, if this is how it went, I, I, you know, claps for them too, because they got this shit done fast. Um, which is another point in the, uh, <laughs> the defayers died. They're like, yeah, they got it done too fast. They were, they were botching the job. Uh, they just wanted to, they just wanted to close the case really fast. Um, about 9am, they go into the file room and they wake up Ronnie and Ronnie wakes up and he says, did you find Fellini? And they're like, no, Ronnie. And in fact, we think that you did it. We think you did this. So they start reading him his rights, and Ronnie's like freaking out. Ronnie's like, no, 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 wait, it's Fellini. It's Fellini. Don't, you don't have to, you don't have to read me my rights. They're reading him his rights. They're like, do you want to waive this right? Do you want to waive this right? Do you want, you know, your right to an attorney? Do you want to waive the right? So Ronnie waves all the rights, right? And they, they read it to him twice. And Ronnie waves all the rights because he's like, no, you don't get it. This is Fellini, man. Fellini. Fellini killed my family. Um, and they, yeah, they're like, no, Ronnie did it. Okay. Now there's two detectives that come in to question Ronnie, right? At this point, they, they suspect Ronnie, Ronnie's the prime suspect. And so, uh, detective Dennis Rafferty and detective Dunn come in to question him and they question him for like over six hours. Um, and Rafferty, it's like, it's, it's listed. Rafferty's strategy is kind of listed here. And he says that he, has, has this really good strategy when he comes in questioning. He he makes sure that he already suspects that the guy is guilty. Whoever he's coming in to interview, he suspects that they're guilty already. That's one of his strategies. Another one is he has the cot taken out of Ronnie's room or out of the file room, and he has a really uncomfortable chair brought in, a chair that doesn't have arms, it doesn't have wheels, so that Ronnie has to literally just sit and face him. He also pulls his own chair super close to Ronnie so that uh, Rafferty's knee is in between Ronnie's knees as they're talking so that Ronnie can't close his knees. I guess it's just a tactic there and that they're super close eye to eye. So while he's questioning him that, uh, that yeah, he's got him, I don't know. He's got him by the balls. Um, this is <laughs> a little problematic, right? It's like these tactics. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about these tactics. Cause it does seem like in the night, the defense died. They pull, they point out a lot of this and they're saying, well, this is police brutality, you know, um, to be quite, this does happen a lot, right? that there will be an innocent person and Ronnie's nowhere near innocent but there will be an innocent person who's being questioned and if they're being questioned for x amount of time no food no water they're not you know they're they're really uncomfortable they might break under the pressure and so it seems like Rafferty's just trying to get Ronnie to break 
Um, at first, Ronnie sticks to a story that Fellini did it, uh, or that he, he wasn't there when it happened. And, and Rafferty is doing the thing where a detective kind of leads somebody to the answer. And so he's like, well, Ronnie, we think it happened between two and four. Did it happen between two and four? And Ronnie says, yeah, I think it must have happened between two and four. Well, if it happened between two and four, you must have been home, Ronnie. You must have been home, and you must have heard something. And Ronnie's like, you know what? Yeah, it happened between two and four, and I, I, I did hear something. And they're like, well, if you heard something, why didn't you do anything? And Ronnie's like, you know what? I was scared. I hid. I hid. And they're like, no, Ronnie, we don't think you hid. We don't think you hid. Uh, we think that you you knew what happens, and you must have saw something. You saw something, Ronnie. Ronnie's like, you know what? I did. And he goes, back to Fellini and he says it was actually Fellini Fellini did it he came in with another guy and he uh they they killed everybody and I had to watch and then they're like mm, but you must have shot the gun too this is where it gets like so weird right it's like I'm reading this and I'm like this is coercion you're like you're like leading him to the answer you can't do that you can't lead him to the answer um and so he's like well you know, maybe maybe I did shoot a couple of them. Uh, Fellini and the other guy actually had me shoot a couple of them. They're like, no, we think you shot probably all of them. Did you shoot all of them? And he's like, yes, I shot all of them. And nobody else was there. Finally, they get to the answer that Ronnie shot all of them and nobody else was there. They get a, they get this confession and they they try to get him to sign it. Ronnie does not sign the confession, by the way. He doesn't sign the confession because he doesn't want it to get back to his grandfather, uh, Mago Burgandy. Um, he's also throughout this entire trial and entire investigation and everything, super paranoid that, uh, there's a mob hit out on him, which I think is very fair because his family has a lot of mob ties, right? Michael Brandy has mob ties. Rocco DeFeo has mob ties. Fellini's out there somewhere, um, as a hitman. Nothing to do with this. He doesn't even know what's happening. Uh, but they, Ronnie's very like paranoid that there's going to, there's a hit out on him, right? I think I should also mention that during the questioning, Ronnie was like a total dick to his mask totally slipped. He went from being so sad that his parents died and there was Fellini, you gotta go catch Fellini, avenge my family, to he was saying some pretty nasty shit about his family. He was calling his fist, sister a, a, a fat pig and he was calling his parents a bunch of names saying that his mom's cooking was tasted like shit and that his brothers were pigs it's just like these people just died right if you had a family that just died like it doesn't matter what complaints you had about any of them you wouldn't be saying any of this it, it just totally lets that mask slip and then he's arrested pretty quickly all of this is moving pretty quickly and on the day of the funeral is actually the day that he's the same day that he's arraigned and uh he's going to be charged for all of these murders so six counts um, he wasn't really showing much remorse and he actually asked a detective about life insurance, like how he could get his life insurance or if he was going to get his life insurance. So like, uh, um, there's also a lot of town gossip at this point. Like news gets out that Ronnie's been arrested for this thing and that the police think that it's Ronnie's the one who did it. And everybody in town's like, yeah, I knew that Ronnie, he was a violent one. We always knew he was going to do something like this. Everybody's coming out of the woodwork. Like, yeah, we always knew it. He was violent. He's a dopehead. We always knew that he was going to kill somebody. Um, but then there's also people on the flip side who are like, who were his friends and that none of them are like speaking at all. They all pretty much take more of a neutral approach and they're like, well, I hope that the, the DA, the DA's office has a, has a pretty good case. Um, and then I think it's pretty commonly shared the opinion that everybody thinks that Ronnie's going to plead insanity or plead insanity as his defense. Right. And he's going to say that he did it out of insanity. Um, which is like, 
pretty good indicator there, man. Ronnie has this really bad attitude the entire time he's in jail and prison as well, right? He goes through three lawyers because he's just so difficult. Um, his last lawyer, like mentions that maybe they should do an insanity defense and Ronnie like threatens to kill him he like attacks him and the lawyer excuses himself from the case he's not gonna do it and so um he goes through three lawyers and like forty thousand dollars Michael Brigani his grandfather's been paying for the whole thing and then uh, by the third lawyer Michael Brigani's like you know what your dimes run out you've run out of money we're not going to do this anymore. The judge presiding over the case is named Signorelli, and he assigns William Weber to Ronnie's case. And so he's Ronnie's defense now. Uh, Signorelli and Gerard Sullivan, the author of this of this High Hopes book, also, they have like a really contentious relationship. They really don't like each other. Because um, I think about four years before this, uh, Gerard Sullivan had been held in contempt of court for like objecting and like not being quiet when Signorelli tells him to be quiet. So like they don't like each other. Also, we got to talk about the relationship between Judge Signorelli and William Weber. There was a little bit of a conflict of interest there. Uh, Signorelli was running for surrogate of Suffolk County. I don't know what the fuck that is, but William Weber was very active and involved with Signorelli's campaign. Um, so conflict of interest there. Signorelli brings this up to, to William Weber and to Gerard Sullivan and says, hey, if there's a problem here, then you need to let me know. And if you don't want me on this case, if you don't think I can handle this case because William Weber's working on my campaign, you let me know. And Sullivan doesn't say anything. He's like, oh, I guess it's fine, whatever. But like in the wings, he's kind of plotting to uh, to get Signorelli to remove himself, right? There's a journalist named Carposi. <laughs> It's all these Italian names, man. Uh, and Carposi and Sullivan are keep having they keep having conversations, and and Sullivan's telling Carposi all about like Judge Signorelli and William Weber and their kind of close connection. And uh, Carposi says, "Well, you know, maybe I'll write about it in in the paper." And they both know that Signorelli would not like this because it's pretrial like drama. So uh, Sullivan tells Signorelli about this and Judge Signorelli and says, hey, uh, there's this guy Carposi and he's thinking about writing about this conflict of interest in a magazine. And immediately Signorelli uh, excuses himself from the case. He takes himself off the case. Now Gerard Sullivan, because he did write the book, it's like, you know, in the eye, eye point of view. And he keeps saying, yeah, after, after Signorelli uh, was off the case, I went judge shopping. He like describes it as judge shopping. And he goes look, looking for the perfect judge that was going to help him win his case. It's just also like a conflict, right? Like, why are you, this, this is corruption. This is corruption. I don't know. Um, there's a lot of criticism about the judge shopping in, in the night that the DeFeos died. Eventually, Sullivan finds a judge, uh, Thomas Stark, and he convinces Thomas Stark to take on the case. And so he does. The trial is scheduled to begin October 14th. And William Weber is asking for all of the files from the DA's office. All the files involved in the case. All the pictures. All of the like, autopsy records. Everything. Everything. He wants it all. Right? Everything that the DA's office has, he wants. He wants a list of all the witnesses. And uh, Sullivan really makes it known that he is. He even admits this in his own book. That he is really stalling for time. He's trying to get them to the last possible second until he has to give all of these files to William Weber. And by the time he gives the files to William Weber, William Weber has like a month to study everything. So like, yes, Ronnie, Ronald DeFeo did like kill his entire family, but I still believe that everybody is entitled to a fair trial. And it seems like there was a lot of hodgepodge going on here, a lot of bullshit going on. And it didn't really seem like it was set up to be a fair trial. Um, so the the case yeah starts uh, 14 October basically the day DA's office 
Their goal is to prove that Ronnie is was completely sane when he killed his family and that he did it alone. And the defense's case is that Ronnie was was out of his mind and that he he was insane, and maybe he'll go to you know an institution for a couple of years and then get out. That's basically what the case is: sane versus insane. Ronnie, by this point in prison, is like he's he's like a freaking songbird man. The DA's office is getting so many different uh, witness statements about Ronnie, just like in prison telling everybody all these different stories about how the murders happened, like why the murders happened, um, telling them that he's going to act like he's insane. He's going to act like he's, you know, um, that he'll never go to jail because he's just going to act like he's insane and he's really good at it. And he's Ronnie like sets fires in his jail cell and he like refuses to eat. Um, he, he goes like climbing bars. He's like really playing up the insanity thing, but then he's telling on himself and telling everybody what his master plan is. Right. And the defensive psychiatrist obviously comes in and says that Ronnie is insane. It was insane when he killed uh, his family and the, the prosecution psychiatrist comes in and says that, yeah, so Ronnie was doing LSD. He was doing heroin and he has antisocial, uh, personality disorder, but he was very sane when he killed his family. <laughs> During the trial, a lot comes out about the family. The family is pretty much painted as this really dysfunctional family. This is from all of these eyewitness testimonies, from the prosecution, from the defense. Everybody pretty much agrees that this was a dysfunctional family who had a lot of domestic violence problems. Big Ronnie and Louise got married really young, and their families initially did not accept them being married. They did not like them. They kind of wrote him off initially. Uh, they had their first son, Ronnie Jr., pretty young. Um, they were living in Brooklyn in this tiny Brooklyn apartment. They kept having kids after kids after kids. And Ronnie Sr. was really abusive towards the kids, towards his wife. He was always beating her up. And at one point, she leaves him and it's going to stay gone. And Ronnie Sr. is, this is kind of a pattern here too, is that he's always beating her up she gets mad and then he's like constantly apologizing he's like apologizing 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 so when louise leaves him he's like apologizing to no and he writes her a song y'all do not take a man back just because he writes you a song but i found this really interesting actually there's a song by joe williams called the real thing that ronald defeo senior wrote for louise because he beat her up and she left him like what and she loved the song so she came back to him um and so it's just this dysfunctional life, the, the, this massive family in this tiny-ass Brooklyn apartment. And so in 1965, they moved to Amityville, and they moved to 112 Ocean Avenue. Michael Brigani pretty much gets them this house, right? Ronald Sr. is not really the provider. Um, he's never really paying for anything. I think Michael Brigani pays for the house outright. He... Uh, is, is paying for the bills. He's employing Ronald Sr. You know, they have all this money. They're always flaunting their wealth. They're always like buying all of the latest things and their house is beautiful. Their furniture is beautiful. They're driving all of these really nice cars. And it's all because of Michael Borgani. He wanted his daughter to have the best life possible and knew that Ronald Sr. wasn't going to give it to him. I wonder if he knew that uh, Ronald Singer was abusing his his daughter, and if what he what action he would have taken if he known, he probably would have had him killed. Right, Feline had come in with that gun. The DeFeos were devout Catholics, and all the kids went to went to Catholic school, 
And there was all these, you can look at the pictures and there's all this religious iconography everywhere. There's these statues and shrines and altars set up all around the house. In the front of the house, there's a sign that says, I hopes. And it's the most famous sign like outside of the Amityville house. So you probably already have it in your mind if you know anything about the case. And so the high hope sign is outside and there's also a, a statue of the Virgin Mary. And Ronald Sr. actually in his later years became like devoutly, devoutly religious. Like they were Catholics. They were, they, they were, they believed in God and all that, but they weren't like super active in church and everything. But, uh, Ronald Sr. got like really, really into it. And he would like make his, he would force his family to pray around the rosary. If they had guests over, they had to pray around the rosary. Ronald Sr. would like, anytime he was upset, anytime he like feeling down on himself or anytime he needed to pray, he'd run out to the front yard and he'd start screaming prayers and start crying loudly and in front of all the neighbors. And it was really pissing like Louise off because she, this, this guy's acting unstable, right? It's uh, this unstable religious nut. And at the same time, Ronald was also like still abusing his entire family. He was beating his kids all the time. Ronald Sr. and Ronnie Jr. were always fighting. They were they were constantly fighting. They had the, the worst relationship. And I think because I think it was mentioned in a documentary that I saw recently that because uh, Ronald Sr. was being so emasculated by by Michael Regani paying for everything and really like picking up the slack that Ronald was not was not handling um, that. Then Ronald Sr. was taking it out on Ronnie Jr. and he was always beating him up. Ronnie Ronnie Jr. always had like you know cuts on his lips or like black eyes and as well as Louise did. There was one instance where Louise is doing laundry downstairs and she's yelling at the kids to be quiet. They're being loud and she's coming up the stairs and. Ronald Sr. like opens the door and he like punches her as she has this this laundry basket in her hand and he punches her and she goes tumbling down the stairs back into the basement. He closes the door and he sits down and he says, okay, now we need to eat in peace. And everybody's just quiet and they can't believe it. And they're like, holy shit. And there's another instance where uh, Ronnie is, they're all like around the pool playing and, and such and Ronnie... Junior gets a cherry bomb and throws it into the pool next to his dad, and it goes off, and Ronald Sr. gets pissed and chases him out to the front yard and starts like kicking his ass right in front of all the neighbors. You know, this entire family was under this father's thumb, and none of them were, were safe from his wrath. They were all getting beat. They were all getting abused. Um, Dawn, the oldest sister, there was one one time where she, you know, he was like beating everybody. He was going around and punching everybody, and she went and got a knife, and she tried to stab him. And he got the knife away from her and he like beat her. So there's just dysfunction, man. And like none of these kids are allowed to leave the house. They all want to leave. Uh, Dawn is 18 and Ronald, Ronnie Jr. is, is 23. And so they want to leave the house, obviously. But anytime they try to leave the house, anytime Ronnie Jr. leaves the house, his dad, you know, goes and gets him, basically. It's it's this mindset where they're always under, under going to be under Ronnie's thumb. Um, and then Ronald, so what Ronald Sr. will do is beat his family up and, and, you know, create all this trauma and then he'll give them money or give them cars or jewelry or clothes or whatever they want. He'll, you know, basically buy their love back and instead of apologizing, instead of like trying to change himself, he's just always handing out money. So he gives Ronnie as much money as he ever wants, right? And Ronnie's never hurting for money. One argument between Ronald Sr. and Ronnie Jr. that keeps getting played is a couple days before, either the night before or a couple days before, uh, they supposedly got into a really, really big bust-up in the basement, and, and Ronnie Jr. got, like, roughed up pretty bad, and that, that was a breaking point for him, and that he was really upset about that, and so they're really trying to paint it as, like, this was an event that was just, like, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. But the defense is like, okay, he was abused, he was constantly being abused, but he is insane. And at one point, he goes up, and is called as a witness and he goes up um, to testify and he 
testifies that he was alone one night. This is the story. He was alone one night and the night of the murders and that he was watching an old war movie and that a pair of black hands handed him the rifle and he could hear his family whispering and plotting to kill him. And so he took the rifle and he heard a voice that said, kill him, kill him. And so he went and he killed them all. Um, and he kind of like botched his own like insanity thing. He, he said, once, uh, once I started, I just couldn't stop. And he claims that it was like self-defense. And it's like, how are you self-defense? They're all asleep. What are you talking about? These are children. One of his younger brothers, either Mark or John, was even in a wheelchair. He was using crutches because he'd gotten injured at, um, playing sports. So it's, it's self-defense, my ass. When the time comes, the jury really does deliberate on all this because you have to understand, as a part of the jury, you really are deciding somebody's fate here, you know. And you are, you are as much as you might think somebody did it, is the prosecution proving what they're setting out to, to, to prove? One time when I was in college, my mom was called as a witness because her friend had been murdered. And uh, later on, a lot later, she had actually had a conversation with the, uh, with the jury member. The jury member reached out to my mom on Facebook, and she said, um, and they acquitted this man who killed my mom's friend. And she said, I feel sick about it. I just feel like I want to throw up. But... I, we don't. We didn't feel that the question that was being posed by the prosecution was was proven. You know, we know he killed him, and we know it was vicious. But like, um, we don't think the prosecution proved their case, and so that's what's going on here. Is uh, the jury is really deliberating on whether the prosecution proved their case? Is that did Ronald DeFeo kill his family? with a sane mind was he calculating it was it was there a motive you know and the motive painted throughout this entire this entire trial is that ronald was after money um i think the one of the pieces of information that really that really solidified the jury's the jury's minds in this thing is the sheepdog the sheepdog that the DeVeos had so the the dog hated ronnie absolutely hated ronnie and had attacked him on a couple of instances and so ronnie um had put the dog, had tied the dog outside because the dog would have gone ballistic if he saw Ronnie like going from room to room and shooting everybody. So Ronnie ties the dog outside, so the prosecution says, and uh, leaves him out there in order to do it. And so that proves that Ronnie had a sane mind and that he was calculated and doing things with, with intent, you know. And so trial lasts from October 14th to November 21st, and Ronnie is found guilty. He's found guilty of all six counts and 25 years to life on all six counts and he went to jail for the rest of his life in 2021 in march 2021 he died he died at 69 and this is the thing about ronnie right it's like we know he killed him but like there's been a lot of hot debate about what happened that night because again things that are really suspicious here six people were murdered none of them got away none of the neighbors heard gunshots there were a total of eight gunshots and none of the neighbors heard any of that none of the family members heard any of that um nobody tried to run nobody tried to anything they're all you know face down on their on their beds they were all shot you know it, it's there's so many questions to this whole thing so there's been a lot of debate about like what actually happened and so we're gonna go through a couple of ronnie's changing stories he had like 50 million stories he changed the story all the time first story was fellini obviously uh then he said it was an, a random intruder then he said it was fellini and another man that made him shoot um then he said it was him alone then he was said he was possessed um there's another story that was really interesting actually that he told somebody while he was in prison 
that he, his buddy Bobby Kelsky, his girlfriend Mindy, and two others were looking for $75,000 that was hidden in this house. Um, and as they were looking for the money, Ronald Sr. came out and caught them. And so they had to kill everybody. They killed the parents, and then they herded all of the kids into a room, and they killed them all. Um, and so that there were one, two, three, four, five, five people who were involved in that murder in that story. He told another story that there were no accomplices. Ronnie did it all on his own, and it's because he wanted money to just run away. He wanted to take his girlfriend, Mindy, and they were going to just run. Um, so he was looking for like $200,000 or something and a, a bunch of jewelry that he knew was hidden in the house. And this is, this is something that I, I do believe is that there was a bunch of money hidden in the house, and I think Ronnie got his hands on it. Um, the detectives, either the detectives didn't find it and Ronnie had gotten rid of it by then, or one of the detectives took it and they were living large for a little bit. Um, but it was kind of confirmed that there was money hidden around the house. I think uh, investigators even like pulled up a piece of carpet and found a couple, like 600 bucks, like hidden under the carpet. Um, Michael Brigani was on tape asking, asking like where missing money and jewelry were there were, there was a bunch of jewelry that was supposed to be in that house that belonged to the to his daughter and it was just unaccounted for so there was a bunch of stuff hidden in that house there had to have been and i think ronnie knew about that and one of the last stories that ronnie told was is actually like the the, the big highlight point of the night the defeos died and it's the case that they're trying to make in that book as well is that uh his sister dawn had something to do with it that it was him dawn and bobby kelsky that killed everybody um that they, him and Don had, had come up with a plan that they wanted to kill their parents and they wanted to get money and, and run away so that they could be free of this, this, this life. They weren't going to kill the kids. They were just going to kill the parents. They needed to get away. They were, things were bubbling over and it was time to do it. Um, Dawn wanted to go to Florida with her boyfriend. I don't think her dad was letting her. And so she was wanting to do that. That was her motive. You know, she was wanting to get away too. She was trying to escape also. And so this story goes that they were all three kind of in the doorway of the parents' room and, uh, yeah, they were, uh, Ronnie was pointing the gun and, and he, he couldn't shoot. And so Dawn took the gun and she shot. And as, as Ronnie was going to get up, Ronald Sr. was going to get up, they shot again. They shot the mother. Um, and they didn't shoot the kids. They just told the kids to stay in their room. They yelled at them, stay in your room. Um, Bobby Kelsky was too freaked out. And he took off. And Ronnie went chasing after him to get him to come back. And while he was gone, Dawn took the rifle and she went room to room and killed all the kids, all their siblings. And when Ronnie got home, he went up to uh, he he found all the kids dead he was shocked he was uh, couldn't believe it he went up to don's room and found don like packing and he confronts don there's a scuffle he ends up shooting don dead and, and so his story is that like he had a part in it but don did most of the killing i think what's interesting about this one though is that in a lot of his varying 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 accounts and his changing stories um don always plays some sort of role in it there's a couple different accounts that he tells where don actually does wake up and she opens her bedroom door and looks down the stairs and asks ronnie what's going on and ronnie just says nothing it's nothing and she goes back to bed like she pops up a lot in his stories um so it's interesting also the night that defeos died paints this picture that uh don had gunpowder residue on her nightgown and if you look at her autopsy or her, her her photo at the crime scene she's covered like up to her neck in in a blanket and so there's how would gun residue get on her nightgown if she was covered in a blanket and if she was shot she wasn't shot at close range because there's no stippling on her her wound her, her gunshot wound that went through the neck so how would obviously the gun like shot her from a distance how would 
gunpowder residue get on get on her nightgown. So the book pretty much goes with that theory. Um, what do I think? I'm going to give my own thoughts here, you know? Uh, I think it's a terrible tragedy. I think... I think some of them had to have woken up. I think Louise woke up. Obviously, I think Allison woke up because she was looking at the killer when he shot her. I think... I think maybe even the boys probably woke up. I don't know. I think people did wake up to these gunshots. Um, I think the dog was going berserk outside, so that could have masked some of the, the shots, and maybe the neighbors didn't hear. Maybe the, it's really late. The neighbors are sleeping. Maybe they're deep sleepers. I don't know. I don't know why they didn't do any, like, tests and go inside the house and, like, just shoot, you know, maybe maybe seven, eight rounds and, like, see if anybody in the neighboring houses could hear at that time. Um, but I think the dog could have masked it, I think. I don't think Dawn had something to do with it, but I think she was awake as well. I think she'd gotten up, and I believe the story that she got up and she peeked out and asked what was happening, and that he told her to go back to bed, and then he went up to her room and he killed her as well. Um, I think she was awake, I think. Ah, it's like a hard one, man. I think I think there was an accomplice. I think the accomplice could have possibly been Bobby Kelsky or somebody else who, and I think that the motive was money. I think they were looking for money. I think Ronnie got somebody on board saying, hey, I'll give you a cut of this money. All we have to do is go go in there and kill everybody. Ronnie was set to inherit like $100,000 of life insurance. He was set to inherit the entire estate. You know, he had, he had gain here. Um, and I think that was the motive. So I think he either had one or two other people with him. Um, and... Because, again, uh, one of the bullets that was taken from Louise during her autopsy was uh, it was different from the other ones. It wasn't a thirty five caliber Marlin rifle bullet. You know, it wasn't from that gun. So, um, and, and recently, oh my gosh, I almost forgot this. Recently, there was a gun found in the canal behind the house. So... And it's like a gun handle, and so I think that might have even been the second murder weapon, you know? I might need to read up on that one a little bit more. Sorry, don't take me at my word on that. But I think I think it proves, it shows evidence that there is, there was there were more than one killer. I, I thought that maybe even he could have drugged them, and that's why nobody woke up. But um, the autopsy proved that there were no, like, drugs in, this, in their systems. Um, so, I don't know, but... Ronald DeFeo died in 2021 at 60, 69 years old, and this murder, this tragedy at 112 Ocean Avenue, all six of these murders really did kick off the however many years it's been of ghost stories that we've gotten because of this, right? And it's this family's, this is this family's legacy, which is devastating. This is so sad. I don't know. I don't know. Very long-winded. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, what do you guys think happened? What theory do you kind of go with? Do you think he was possessed by the devil and went room to room and, you know, in, in a daze and shot everybody? Are you going with that supernatural theory or are you going with something a little bit more grounded? I don't know. What do you guys think? Why do you think like nobody woke up that nobody like tried to get out of the house? You know, that's the weird part to me is that nobody tried to get away. Hmm. I don't know. Um, on Friday, we're going to be covering... The year later that the Lutzes moved into the house, they left 28 days later and they, they screamed ghosts and left all of their possessions and wrote a book. <laughs> so we're going to be covering that on Friday. Um, hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your week and I'll see you then.